Welcome to another ABI podcast of a conversation with a respected figure in the insolvency world regarding topics of interest to insolvency professionals. I'm Felicia Turner, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today we are conducting the second in a series of podcast conversations with presidents of various organizations of prominence in the insolvency community. For this April installment, I'm speaking with Judge Thomas Bennett, the current president of the National Conference of Bankruptcy Judges, known as the NCBJ. Judge Bennett is a bankruptcy judge for the Northern District of Alabama in Birmingham. Previously, he was a partner with the firm of Bowles, Rice, McDavid, Graff, and Love in Charleston, West Virginia, where he was the head of the firm's Bankruptcy Creditors' Rights and Commercial Litigation Practice Group. He received his undergraduate and JD degrees from West Virginia University, and following law school, he clerked for the Honorable John R. Brown from the Fifth Circuit. He lectures frequently on bankruptcy and commercial law issues. We're very glad to have him here today with us. Thank you for joining me, Judge. It's a pleasure to join you. Well, Judge, why don't we just start with your telling our listeners about the NCBJ, its history, its membership, its purpose, or, or just anything you want them to know. Well, NCBJ stands, as some people know and some may not, as the National Conference of Bankruptcy Judges. Uh, its history is that it's an organization that started before bankruptcy judges were called bankruptcy judges. It started under the old referee system, and it was an association of bankruptcy referees going back uh, probably to the 1920s or so when it originally was uh, started. Um, the membership of what are full members uh, is limited to bankruptcy judges, uh, and I need to qualify that because we are going to have a new membership category uh, that won't be full membership, but it'll be pretty close for uh, insolvency uh, judges from uh, courts that are outside the United States. That's a new uh, provision that we've adopted within the last six months. Uh, with respect to purpose, uh, the organization uh, has various purposes. Uh, the majority are focused on uh, bankruptcy and related education issues. Uh, one is pretty obvious from our annual meeting. We provide uh, continuing legal education for judges, lawyers, and other uh, legal, uh, financial, uh, and other insolvency types of professionals. Uh, we also try to promote cooperation among uh, bankruptcy judges. We try to work for a greater degree of quality and uniformity in the administration of the bankruptcy system. Uh, we also try to improve the quality of the practice uh, in front of the various bankruptcy courts in the United States. Uh, and additionally, we have uh, three categories of uh, what may be called subparts to the NCBJ that further these various activities. One is the endowment, which funds uh, bankruptcy research and also bankruptcy education. Another is the American Bankruptcy Law Journal, which we consider to be uh, the premier uh, publication uh, by way of a bankruptcy journal uh, with respect to uh, bankruptcy law issues. And then finally, we have various committees within the NCBJ which undertake various uh, education and related activities. We have, for instance, a public outreach committee uh, that has produced a, a video 
Um, it's on a CD that we supply to high schools throughout the United States uh, free of charge. We have care programs that are sponsored uh, uh, through the NCBJ and in part paid for uh, by NCBJ monies. And so that's kind of the range of uh, uh, the membership, our purpose, and a little bit of our history. Right, and that's great information for our listeners because I don't think everyone realizes how long the NCBJ has been around and then a lot of your attendees at the conference, I don't think they also realize all of the other benefits and the great projects you do. Um, that's interesting, too, that you're bringing in the international judges. That's something that all of the organizations, including the ABI, are doing a lot of international things these days. So that's a great development. As to being president in such a well-run and big organization, it must take up a lot of your time. How, how much time does it take up? How long is your term? What kind of things do you find yourself doing? I'm sure our listeners would be interested in that. Well, the term is uh, approximately one year. It can vary from year to year, but it goes from the uh, last day of the annual meeting, which is normally in October, but sometimes it's in early November or late September, uh, until the next to last day of the next year's annual meeting. Um, and so basically it's a one-year term. As to how much time it takes, it's somewhat like any other job. Uh, it probably varies depending on what needs to be done and the time of the year. As we get closer to uh, our mid-year meeting and our annual meeting, it takes more of my time. As we're trying to put together an education program, it takes more. And then sometimes there are legislative issues that uh, come up sometimes frequently unknown in advance that uh, in short bursts can use up a significant amount of time, sometimes a day or two or more. Uh, and so it really depends on uh, when it is during the year, uh, what the issues are, uh, and uh, uh, also what I call my day job and uh, having to get things done there. But uh, it could be from a couple of minutes a day to all day uh, mm -hmm. or days. Yeah, that sounds much like um, our organization as well. And I know that we really appreciate our volunteer leaders. It's not easy to do your day job and everything else that you do. Let's talk a little bit about BAT-CEPA and the different effects it may have had on the bench. It certainly had a profound effect on all the bankruptcy professionals, and, and your, you and your um, colleagues are no exception. The most significant way, perhaps, was with respect to the filings. We know that there was a huge surge in filings pre-BAPSEPA and bigger than we ever expected. And then there was a bottoming out of the filings right after BAPSEPA, which was also probably bigger than we expected. And right now we're experiencing a rise in filings. And there's a lot of speculation about whether or when these filings will reach pre-BAPSEPA levels. In our last press release on this matter, it showed that the consumer filings in February were up more than 15% compared to January and that the February filings this year as opposed to last year were up 37%. What have you been seeing in your district and how have these ups and downs in the filings affected the bench and its workload? Uh, the Alabama filings have uh, pretty much followed the national uh, trend that you cited for February of this year versus the prior time. Our filings, I think, were up roughly about 35 to 38% range on consumer cases. Alabama is a little bit different from other parts of the country. 
uh, we I, I moved here to take this job uh, from another state, and the unemployment rate in Jefferson County, where I'm located, Shelby County, and a couple of other counties, has rarely been four percent. It's usually lower, and for Shelby County, it's uh, I don't think it's ever been above two percent in the time I've been here. And so, for the last 13 years or so, we've had a relatively stable economy with not uh, significant unemployment. We did not have the major spikes in the housing that you saw in Florida and California and some other places. And so right now we have not had the uh, major drops in housing valuations. That being said, uh, we have uh, always had a lot of consumer cases here, particularly Chapter 13. A lot of people may not be aware of this, but the old wage earner plans were actually developed in Birmingham uh, in the 30s. Uh, and so uh, there's a historical connection between chapter, what is today a Chapter 13 in Birmingham. Um, I think that you're, you're going to see, based on what we see here and elsewhere, an increase in consumer cases for how long. That's almost anybody's guess. Uh, the scope. Um, I, uh, I used to teach economics in the university level, and, and before I went to law school, I studied economics on the graduate level and have a graduate degree in economics. And let me say that I don't necessarily think that uh, the bankruptcy filings on the consumer side will go back to pre-BAPSEPA levels unless there is a very significant uh, economic difficulty far greater than the ones we've seen in the last 30 years or so. Uh, and the reason is that the way they've structured BAPSEPA is to make it more expensive to file. And when I say more expensive from an economic point of view, it's not just filing fees. Uh, it is <clears throat> pre-bankruptcy uh, education, post-bankruptcy education, limitations on what you can do with automobiles under the nine, 10-day car provisions and a whole range of little issues that, from an economic point of view, effectively increase the cost to the consumer, that is, the debtor, filing a bankruptcy case. And so if one compares apples to apples, uh, those increased costs uh, make bankruptcy less attractive uh, and would effectively uh, create uh, what is a uh, change in the demand uh, uh, of various consumers at a particular price, uh, meaning a decrease in demand. Uh, likewise, it also makes bankruptcy less attractive, in my opinion, than what some states may have as non-bankruptcy remedies with limitations on garnishments, uh, the various provisions that are out there by way of exemptions. And it really depends on where you are, but I think uh, that uh, what has happened with BAPSEPA is that you have a increase in the overall cost being dollars and non-dollar uh, types of costs, which effectively has decreased the demand for some time to come. And so uh, in mathematical parlance, if everything else is, stays the same, you would expect that the filings would not increase to their prior levels on a per thousand or hundred thousand basis uh, unless we have very serious economic problems that are far greater than the types we've had, as I said, in the last 30 or so years. Mm -hmm. And of course, the attorney fees have gone up as well, which is probably a little component of that, too. It is. What about the substantive changes 
what, what are some of the legal issues that you or your colleagues are seeing that are, are more common to come before the courts under BAPSEPA's new you know, the legal issues? Well, there are a whole range of issues that uh, normally with a statute when it gets enacted, uh, you will have a whole, a whole bunch of issues, but as time passes, we're now, what, uh, two, two and a half yeah, years or so uh, uh, since the effective date, uh, almost three years since the uh, passage date. Uh, and uh, so some of the issues have... I guess, for want of a better term, work their way through the system, but you still have, uh, you know, means test issues. You've got uh, some exemption issues. Uh, you've got uh, what are more technical issues on on uh, issues of whether certain requirements are jurisdictional or not with respect to uh, things that might be technical requirements of the statute on. For instance, giving tax returns to a trustee in a consumer case so many days before the 341, filing pay remittances uh, for certain time frames. And all those issues are, are out there in a lot of courts. Uh, they, they expend a lot of our time on what are not really very substantive issues from the point of view of how the bankruptcy case progresses or should progress to closing. But they are uh, requirements. They're being looked at differently by different judges, uh, and one only need look at the case law to see that. What about in the Chapter 11 area? Have you seen much on the new small business provisions or the ombudsman provisions in your court? Surprisingly, uh, I have not seen in, in Birmingham and in Alabama, uh, we have not seen any uh, increase in what, what could be called small business Chapter 11. Uh, and uh, it's one that 
I suppose for now is a moot issue, but in the long term, I'm not certain how long the U.S. trustee system uh, or the bankruptcy administrator system can file motions or have their representatives file motions when apparently no one knows what the parameters are for determination of when those are filed. You're, I guess you're specifically talking about the fact that the U.S. trustee system doesn't make public what is a material misstatement for purposes of the debtor audit? Correct. Right. I think that, I mean, at least in my experience, and I certainly don't speak for the program, but in my experience, by the time I brought a motion or um, a matter before the court, it would be obvious, you know, within that motion what the grounds were. But I think the reasoning behind not making that public is you don't necessarily um, want to advertise what is or isn't material because that doesn't mean that that's covered everything, the whole gamut, or you don't want people to know. I mean, for example, and this is arbitrary if it was you know, material misstatement to leave off a car but not to leave off a motorcycle, you don't want anyone to think they could get away with well, hiding mean, I, the motorcycle but not the car. I understand but, the argument yeah. of gaming the system. The mm -hmm. problem, I think, is, though, that, that if, if you're claiming there's a material misstatement and one has to assess it from the totality of the circumstances point of view, uh, not knowing what the, what the internal determination is and not being told how it was arrived at makes it very difficult uh, in some cases, obviously the close cases, uh, to decide uh, whether in fact uh, there is such a material mistake. All right. Well, I mean, the burden of proof would clearly be on the U.S. trustee to put forth what it is, what are the facts, and to prove to the court that it was something rising to the level that required a dismissal or a denial of a discharge or what have you. So, I mean, I think their approach was more... This is just factual information we're gathering from the debtor audit, and then we can decide whether, I mean, they had discretion whether to bring it before the court or not, and sometimes they didn't, but at the point that they did decide to bring it to the court, I mean, clearly, yes, the burden was on them. Whether they revealed their guidelines or not, the burden was on them to prove the facts of their case and why that rose to the level of, you know, granting the relief they were requesting. But, yeah, I mean, it's just an issue that's out there that right. uh, may, may be gone away forever at this point. That's yeah, I think they intend on doing it at some point again when they can, but um, I don't know the details on that. Well, let's move to administrative matters that might be near and dear to your heart or some of the judges' hearts. There are a lot of people that talk about how with the case filings these days that they're not always matched up correctly to the districts in terms of the number of judges, that maybe some districts need more judges, some districts have a lot of judges um, compared to their caseload. What is that situation right now? Is there any movement afoot with Congress that might address this? Any thoughts you have on that, the number of judges? Um, you know, as, as you've indicated, uh, uh, right now there are some jurisdictions that really don't need uh, new judges. There are some jurisdictions actually where uh, as judges retire or leave the bench for other reasons, positions are not being filled. And in a, a few places, uh, there are uh, some needs. Uh, I'm not aware of any pending bill at this point uh, for new bankruptcy judges. Uh, and uh, uh, However, that is an issue that is uh, actually under review uh, on a periodic basis, and right now there is a review going on nationwide with respect to uh, numbers and need. And where that will come out, I don't know at this point in time. 
Well, what about the bigger issue about the judicial pay raise? The federal judiciary hasn't had a substantial pay raise since 1991, and back in December, the House Judiciary Committee passed a straight pay raise bill, 28 to 5, and in January, the Senate Judiciary Committee passed one, 10 to 7, which was closer, and this one also included an amendment, the Feingold Amendment, that has certain prohibitions against accepting gifts. What are your thoughts on where this might be headed? And, of course, I know it's important to the bench, but um, any thoughts you would offer to our listeners about that as well? Well, uh, I hope it's headed toward enactment in some <laughs> format. Um, it, it's a little bit problematic uh, for Article One judges at this point because uh, what has been indicated is, although there's nothing drafted, that there's a... Uh, a proposed modification to the retirement provisions uh, with respect to Article One judges that would mimic uh, the, the drafted language for retirement modifications for Article Three judges, which means uh, 67 years of age and 17 years of service to get the full retirement, uh, whereas currently it's 65 is the age at which you can get retirement benefits for an Article One judge. Uh, for bankruptcy judges, it's after 14 years of service to get the maximum amount. Um, and, there are, and, and so that's an issue that's out there that impacts on our membership differently. If you're younger, you're probably in favor of the pay raise more than anything else. If you're a year from retirement and you have 14 years in, it's a different issue if you have to work to 67. Uh, and right now we've got some colleagues that have already indicated that they're not going to seek reappointment. Uh, and so if the bill were to pass, uh, those particular folks would be uh, uh, not able to retire under the, the, uh, the proposed new uh, provisions of 67 uh, with 17 years, and we just don't know how that's going to be handled. The bigger picture, though, I think is that uh, the bench uh, bankruptcy Article One magistrate uh, judges uh, and Article Three judges uh, has over uh, some time changed in its composition. Um, I think, and this is my personal belief, that the federal bench in the 60s and 70s was one of the premier benches in commercial law transactions. Uh, what's happened is that uh, the diversity of people that now are appointed to the bench has changed so that you don't get uh, people with the same sorts of commercial uh, backgrounds that you used to get uh, and other people. And so the diversity of who is on the bench has changed, partly because of economics, and that is that uh, uh, people can make a lot more uh, in private practices that are good private practices. Uh, they also happen to be the types of people you want on the bench. And because the pay is basically not just stagnated, it has decreased in purchasing power. Even in my tenure, uh, over 13 years as a judge, uh, by a significant amount that people just are not willing to take the jobs unless they're uh, already relatively well off, or unless it's a pay raise, uh, for them, and so you've got that middle group uh, that uh, are, you know, 30, 40, 50 uh, age that uh, have families and need to make more money uh, to 
to give their families the sorts of things that uh, they deem to be appropriate. And so I think the long-term pressure is that the competency of the federal bench, particularly in commercial areas, is not what it used to be as a result of not having pay adjustments. Yeah, and the ABI, of course, is nonpartisan, but it, it does um, issue support occasionally for things for the better administration of the system, and the ABI did issue its support for the judicial pay raise. So hopefully that will come through at some point. I'd say it's um, well-deserved and overdue at this point. The ABI and the um, NCBJ have recently entered a partnership in that last year in Orlando, the ABI presented a day of programs at the NCBJ's annual conference, and we're going to be doing that again this fall in Scottsdale. And the program consists of three consecutive hours of business and consumer discussions with panels of three to four professionals in the traditional ABI workshop format, which is a small group interactive environment. And they'll have several panels running simultaneously. How do you think that that went over last year? Can you address how that came about and how it was received? Well, it was wildly successful uh, based on all the comments and the input we uh, received. We, At the end of the programs, we asked people to give uh, reviews, for want of a better term, of uh, the entire program. And all of the both written and oral comments we received uh, were uh, that the uh, panel discussion, a small group interactive environment, was uh, one of the best things we've done for a number of years. Uh, this is something that I believe Jeff Hopkins, my predecessor in Westine, uh, who was at the time the president of the ABI, discussed and worked with uh, Elizabeth Paris to get uh, implemented at our annual meeting in Orlando last year. Mm -hmm. I know they're finalizing for Scottsdale as we speak, I understand. So I was there personally, too, and got to see some of it and thought it was great, as well as the other programs as well. Yeah, the Scottsdale program uh, will be uh, on this portion of it. Uh, we'll have the same number of panels with professionals, uh, and it'll run for the same time frames. The topics will obviously be different, but uh, it was so successful, we've decided to go ahead and do that again. Great. That's great. Well, and we my, enjoy my, doing it. And my understanding is that, uh, and I'm pretty certain that you all tape those so that if people want to uh, listen to them afterwards, they can uh, get copies of the tapes. That's correct. We have um, many, many of our programs are taped and offered on our website. We have a huge what we call the distance learning portal. And I know last year we released it as soon after as we could and, and send it out in our updates. So you're right. They can purchase it. Probably still can purchase last year, too. Well, let's move to a last topic, which is a hot issue these days involving the pending proposals in Congress to give bankruptcy judges the ability to modify residential mortgages in Chapter 13 cases. And I understand that you may have testified on this before, before Congress. So why don't you give us some thoughts on that? matter, which is um, a very hot topic right now. Well, I did testify in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee with respect to uh, two bills that they have uh, had and still have pending. That's the Durbin bill and the Spectre bill. Um, and I won't go into the technicalities because most of mine was from an economic point of view, but uh, the, the gist of what I said is that uh, this needs to be looked at very carefully uh, because what has happened in the mortgage market is something uh, that didn't uh, exist uh, to the same extent, at least, uh, even 10 years ago. And that is there's a fractionalization in what I call a commoditizing of mortgages so that 
you don't have one person or entity owning a whole mortgage. You have the income streams being principal repayments and interest repayments being broken up and then even uh, subdivided within the category of principal and interest packaged uh, sometimes uh, into uh, what are called SIVs and CDOs uh, in the terminology. And so the ownership interest of the, these fractionalized mortgages is different. And, and the, the significant difference causes huge valuation problems, and that is that if one writes down the principal on a mortgage, which uh, the Durban bill and the House bill would allow uh, without the agreement of, of the creditor, the Spectre bill would not uh, unless the creditor agrees. And, and the Spectre bill is more limited on which mortgages that could occur on. Uh, but if you write down the principal or the, uh, with respect to a particular mortgage, on some portions of that mortgage, uh, and depending on whether the mortgage obligations and or the obligations for bundling of these interests uh, or breaking down of the interests uh, deal with it, you can actually uh, wipe away virtually all the value of these fractionalized ownership interests. The same thing happens uh, potentially with interest rate adjustments. Depending on where you are in your ownership of the interest rate stream uh, and what is done, you can literally uh, wipe away the, the full value of somebody's interest. And what makes it even more problematic is that the risk on these transactions was not kept by uh, many of the institutions and entities making uh, or, or facilitating the loans, they're held in people's uh, retirement accounts, their 401ks, their pension plans, their money market accounts. And so uh, it's an issue that has far greater complexities than used to be out there and uh, deserves uh, a very careful look before one tries to mimic what we've done in the past, I think, with respect to uh, how we write down mortgages and apply interest rates because it is uh, of larger dollar amounts, longer terms, and the mathematics of uh, what that does on a write-down uh, is uh, far, potentially far greater uh, than on a short-term obligation such as a car loan. And that would be my general comments on what's being proposed. Okay. Well, thank you for those. I'm sure the ABI, we will be keeping all of our members updated as these items go through Congress. And anything that happens. We hope to be the first on it and let you all know. But before we conclude this podcast, Judge Bennett, let me ask you if you have anything at all on any topic you would like to add for our listeners. Our listeners will primarily be other judges and bankruptcy practitioners and the like from the ABI's membership and the NCBJ's membership. Is there anything you'd like to add? No, I think we've covered pretty much uh, more topics than we probably should have on the half hour or so we've, we've oh. had. So. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for joining me today. I've enjoyed talking with you. I'm sure our listeners will find this podcast informative and insightful. We appreciate your service and dedication to the system as well as that of your colleagues and the NCBJ. To our listeners, we hope you will join us again in May for the next installment in this series, which will be a podcast interview with Bob Sanderson, who's the president of INSOL, which is the International Association of Restructuring, Insolvency, and Bankruptcy Professionals. From the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is Felicia Turner. Thank you for listening.